27, as yet also with something of the jealous guardianship of watchdogs, is their usual escort of young men for though they know none of the fashionable women, their beauty gives them a power of wide selection as to masculine society, one is a showgirl, famous in the way such girls become famous in a New York season, vastly prosperous if one may judge by appearances, yet with a prosperity founded upon the capitalization of youth and amazing loveliness of person, the other two, less advertised, but hardly less striking in appearance, have been nicknamed, for the convenience of the gossips, the Queen of Sheba, and, the Queen of the May, they too suggest, somehow, association with the trivial stage, but it is said that one of them the slender wonderfully rounded one has never had the footlights in her face, but has been in some respects, at least, a model, like the climbers, like the Bush League Bell, these girls, we judge, brought definite ambitions with them to Palm Beach, partly, no doubt, they came for pleasure, but also one hears stories of successful ventures made by men, on their behalf, at beach club tables, and of costly rings and brooches which they now possess, although they did not bring them with them, but after all, the sources from which come their jeweled trinkets may only be surmised, whereas, to the success of their desire for fun, the eyes and ears of the entire smiling beach bear witness, watch them as they clasp hands and run down to the water's edge, see them prancing playfully where the waves die on the sand, while devoted swains launch the floating mattress upon which it is their custom to bask so picturesquely, see them now as they rush into the green waves and mount the softly rocking thing, observe the gleam of their white arms as, idly, they splash and paddle, note the languid grace of their recumbents, chins on hands, heels waving lazily in air, hear them squealing in harmonious unison, as a young member of the Browning Club, makes as though to splatter them, or mischievously threatens to overturn their unwieldy couch-like craft, free from the restriction of ideas about society, about the tradition of Palm Beach, about convention, they seem to detect no difference between this resort and certain summer beaches, more familiar to them, and at the same time more used to boisterousness and cachination, they go everywhere, these girls, you will see them having big cocktails, in a little while, on the porch of the breakers, you will see them having tea, and dancing under the dry rustling palm fronds of the coconut grove, when the colored electric lights begin to glow in the luminous semi-tropical twilight, and you will see them, resplendent, at the beach club, dining, or playing at the green top tables, the beach club has been for some time, I suppose, the last redoubt held in this country by the forces of open, or semi-open gambling, Every now and then one hears a rumor that it is to be stormed and taken by the hosts of legislative piety. Yet on it goes, upon its gilded way a place, it should be said, of orderly, spectacular distinction. The beach club occupies a plain white house, low-spreading and unpretentious, but fitted most agreeably within, and boasting a superb cuisine. Not everyone is admitted. Members have cards, and must be vouched for, formally by persons known to those who operate the place, many of the quiet pleasant people who, leading their own lives regardless of the splurging going on about them, form the background of Palm Beach life much as walking ladies and gentlemen form the crowd in a spectacular theatrical production have never seen the inside of the beach club, and I have little doubt that many visitors who drop in at Palm Beach for a few days never so much as hear of it, it is not run for them, nor for the piker, nor for the needy clerk but for the furious spenders, let us therefore view the beach club only as an interesting adjunct to Palm Beach life, and let us admit that, as such, 
it is altogether in the picture. Let us, in short, seek, upon this brief excursion, not only to recover from our case of grip, but to recover also that sense of the purely aesthetic, without regard to moral issues, which we used to enjoy some years ago, before our legislatures legislated virtue into us. Let us serve, upon the wings of our checkbook, in one final flight to the realms of unalloyed beauty. Let us, in considering this most extravagantly passionate and passionately extravagant of American resorts, be great artists, who are above morals. Let us refuse point-blank to consider morals at all, for by so doing we may avoid giving ourselves away. The season wanes, crowds on the beach grow thinner, millionaires begin to move their private cars from Palm Beach sidings, and depart for other fashionable places farther north. Croupiers at the beach club stand idle for an hour at a time, though ready to spin the wheel, invitingly, for anyone who saunters in. The shops hold cut-price sales, and we, regarding somewhat sadly our white trousers, perceive that there does not remain a single spotless pair. The girl in Mr. Foster's fruit store has more leisure, now, and smiles agreeably as we pass upon our way to the hotel dining room. The waiter, likewise, is not pressed for time. They was seven hundred and twee folks he yesterday. He says, on C643 today, I reckon they are going to close the break who's day after T-Moa. Still the flowers bloom, still the place is beautiful, still the weather is not uncomfortably warm. Nevertheless the season dies, and so it comes about that we depart. The ride through Florida is tedious. The miles of palmettos, with leaves glittering like racks of bared cutlasses in the Sunday the miles of dark swamp in which the cypresses seem to wade like dismal club-footed men, the miles of live oaks strung with their sad-tattered curtains of Spanish moss, the miles of sandy waste, of pineapple and orange groves, of pines with feathery palm-like tops, above all the sifting of fine florida dust, which covers everything inside the car as with a coat of flour these make you wish that you were north again. The train stops at a station, you get off to a walk upon the platform, the row of hatmen and hotel porters stand there, in gloomy silent defiance of the rapidly approaching end of things, each holding a sign bearing the name of some hotel. In another week the railway company may, if it wishes, lift the ban on shouting hotel runners. Let them shout. There will be nobody to hear. You buy a newspaper. Ah, what is this? Great blizzard in New York trains late wires down. You know what New York blizzards are. You picture the scenes being enacted there today. You see the icy streets with horses falling down. You see cyclonic clouds of snow whirl savagely around the corners of high buildings, pelting the home-going hordes, whirling them about, throwing women down upon street crossings. You had a vision of the muddy, slushy subway steps, and slimy platforms, packed with people, their clothing caked with wet white spangles. You see them wedged, cross and damp, into the trains, and hear them coughing into one another's necks. You see emaciated tramps pausing to gaze wanly into bakery windows, men without overcoats, their collars turned up, their hands deep in the pockets of their trousers, their heads bent against the storm, you see them walk on to keep from freezing, you remember Roscoe Conkling, that sort of thing can happen in a New York blizzard, little tattered newsboys, thinly clad, will die tonight upon cold corners, poor widows, lacking money to buy coal, are shuddering even now in squalid tenements, and covering their wailing little ones with shoddy blankets. Horrible, you say, sighing upon the balmy air. Then, with the sweetly resigned philosophy of Palm Beach, you add, Oh, well, what does it matter? 
I'm in Florida anyhow. After all it is a pretty good old world. Chapter L.I. The assorted and resorted Florida, some year or more ago. I suppose, I roamed from Maine to Florida. And, see where them palmettos grows. I bought that little key. Sydney Lanier, a Florida ghost. Florida in winter comes near to being all things to all men. To all she offers amusement plus her climate. And in no one section is the contrast in what amusement constitutes. And costs. Set forth more sharply than where. On the west coast of the state. Air and St. Petersburg are situated. Side by side. The Hotel Bellevue at Air compares favorably with any in the state. And is peopled. During the cold months. With affluent golf maniacs. For whom to find courses have been laid out. When the pipes supplying water for the greens of his home course. At Brook. Indiana. Freeze. Annually. George Add. For instance. Knows that. Instead of hibernating. It is time for him to take his white flannel suits, hang them on the clothesline in the backyard until the fragrance of the mothball has departed, pack them in his wardrobe trunk, and take his winter flight to the Bellevue. He knows that, at the Bellevue, he will meet hundreds of men and women who are suffering from the malady with which he is afflicted. The conversation at Air Island so far as my companion and I could learn, confined entirely to comparisons between different courses, different kinds of clubs and balls and different scores. Bellier turns up its nose at Palm Beach. It considers the game of golf as played at Palm Beach a trifling game, and it feels that the winter population of Palm Beach wastes a lot of time talking about clothes and the stock market when it might be discussing cliques, mid-irons, and mushies. The woman who thinks it essential to be blonde whether she is blonde or not, and who regards 42nd Street as the axle upon which the universe turns, would be likely to die of ennui in a week at Bellier. Whereas, in Palm Beach, if she died in that time, it would probably be of delight with the possibility of alcoholism as a contributing cause, and likewise, though Bellier has plutocrats in abundance, they are not starved for their wealth, as are the Palm Beach millionaires, nor yet for their social position, but are rated strictly according to their club handicap, hence it happens that if, speaking of a Palm Beach millionaire, you ask, how did he make it? You will be told the story of some combine of trusts, some political grafting, or some widely advertised patent medicine, but if you ask in Air, how did he make it, the answer is likely to be, he made it in four, with a clique. Consider on the other hand, St. Petersburg, with its cheap hotels, its boarding houses, its lunch rooms and cafeterias, and its winter population of farmers and their wives from the north. The people you see in St. Petersburg are identical with those you might see on market day in a county town of Ohio or Indiana. Several thousands of them come annually from several dozen states, and many a family of them lives through the winter comfortably on less than some other families spend at Air in a week, or at Palm Beach in a day. If I am any judge of the signs of happiness, there is plenty of it in the hearts of those who winter at St. Petersburg. The city park is full of contented people, most of them middle-aged or old. The women listen to the band, and the men play checkers under the palmetto thatched shelter, or toss horseshoes on the greensward, at the sign of the Sunshine Pleasure Club an occupation which is Street Petersburg's equivalent for Palm Beach's game of tossing chips on the green top tables of a gambling house. And yet is it always pleasant to be virtuous? Is it always delightful to be where pious people, naive people, people who love simple pastimes, are enjoying themselves? 
I am reminded of a talk I had with a Negro whose strong legs turned the pedals of a wheelchair in which my companion and I rode one day through the Palm Beach Jungle Trail. It is a wonderful place, that jungle, with its tangled trunks and vines and its green foliage swimming in sifted sunlight, with its palms, palmettos, ferns, and climbing morning glories, its banana trees, gnarled rubber banyans, and wild mangoes which are like trees growing upside down digging their spreading branches into the ground. For a time we forgot the peddling negro behind us, but a faint puffing sound on a slight upgrade reminded us, presently, that our party was not of two, but three. When the chair was running free again, one of us inquired of the chairman, what would you do if you had a million dollars? Well, boss, replied the negro seriously, I knows one thing I'd do, no matter how much all these world's goods I'd aid, I'd always get mugs of guys. That's wise, my companion replied. What kind of exercise would you take? I ain't never just steadied dad out, boss, returned the man. But it sure would be some kind of exercise besides pushing one odyssey he chase. When you weren't exercising would you go and have a good time? Remember boss, why not? Well, boss, why see us a religious man? Island, but can't people who are religious have a good time? Oh, said the negro. They might have de little pleasures now and then, but they can't have no sick good times like on our folks' skin. A man T.S. Aligius man, he can't have no sick good times like Mr. Watabi single quote Y single quote S and them folks that was he up to a last week. Always Mr. Watabi single quote Y single quote S J boy. He gimme $92.50 tips one week. Yasha, dad might be chardy but he ain't legion. Mr. Dodge, his J boy's been a walkin' for him six weeks. I expect Mr. Dodge give dad boy $500 if he give him a cent. Mr. Watabi single quote Y single quote S Bobby. They had 19 chase waiting on them all the time. Just for tea drive em from the hotel to the club. And the casino. Dad cost em $1900 a week. And the boys. They ain't one of that get less $100 for himself. Dad's stuck in Ojin and Mr. Watabizi on his Bobby Island us hates of all Jinmen DCs and that ain't what you Jay say. Legis. But they was, as folks calls it, Pofuse. They was one old Jinman he two weeks. And he was a young lady what he had a attachment on. And every evening he used he take up full wheel chay ride in the moonlight. First night I took him out he turned to me. And he says, look at he. Boy, you show you knows you had duties. Yasha. Boss. I tell him. D-da-does. Then what is you had duties then? Says he, I say, boss. The che boys duties. Days to be dumb. And beef. And blin. And they can't see nothing. And they can't say nothing. And they can't hear nothing. And they can't, das nuff. He say. I see as you knows you have business. He's fifty dollars. Well. One of us asked presently. What happened? I took em riding through the jungle trail. Boss. He returned. Innocently. What did they do? How does I know? Boss? D not had my eyes go but W.I. dad fifty dollars. D not had my stuff with it. Yasha. And I got my move full of it. The chair boys. Bell boys. Waiters. Barbers. Porters. Bartenders. Waitresses. Chambermaids. Manicures. And shop attendants one finds in Palm Beach. Air, Miami. And many other winter resorts. Are. Numerically a not inconsiderable part of the season's population, and the lives of these people who form a background of service, of which many unaffluent visitor is hardly conscious. 
parallel the lives of the rich in a manner that is not without a note of caricature. When the rich go south so do the hordes that serve them, when the Florida season begins to close and the rich move northward, the serving population likewise begins to melt away, if you are in Palm Beach near the season's end, and move up to St. Augustine, or Jacksonville, or Augusta, or any one of a dozen other places, you are likely to recognize, here and there, a waiter, a bellboy, or a chambermaid whom you tipped, some weeks earlier, preparatory to a leaving a latitude several degrees nearer the equator, when you leave the poinciana or the breakers at the season's close, your waiter may, for all you know, be in the Jim Crow car, ahead, and when you go into dinner at the Ponce de Leon at St. Augustine, or the Mason at Jacksonville, you may discover that he too has stopped off there for a few days, to gather in the final tips, nor must you fancy, when you depart for the north, that you have seen the last of him, next summer when you take a boat up the Hudson, or go to Boston by the Fall River Line, or drop in at a hotel at Saratoga, there he will be, like an old friend, the bartender who mixes you a pick-me-up on the morning that you leave the breakers, will be ready to start you on the downward path, at the beginning of the summer, at some northern country club, the barber who cuts your hair at the Royal Palm in Miami will be ready to perform a like service, later on, at some hotel in the Adirondacks or the White Mountains, the neat waitress who serves you at the Bellevue at Bel Air will appear before you three or four months hence at the Griswold near New London, the adept waiter from the beach club at Palm Beach will seem to you, to look like someone you have seen before when, presently, he places vines before you at Sherry's, or the Ritz, or some fashionable restaurant in London or Paris, likewise, when you enter the barber shop at a large hostelry just off the boardwalk in Atlantic City, next July, you will find there, in the same generously ventilated shirt waist, the manicurist who caused your nails to glisten so superbly in the Florida sunlight, and if she has the memory for faces which is no small part of a successful manicurist's stock in trade, she will remember you, and where she saw you last, and will tell you just which of the young women from the Follies and the Century Theater are to be seen upon the beach that day, and whether they are wearing, here on the Jersey coast, those same surprising bathing suits which, last February, caused blase gentlemen basking upon the Florida sands to sit up, arise, say it was time for one last dip before luncheon, and then, without seeming to deliberate about it, follow the amazing nymphs in the direction of a matchless sea that sea which, as a background for these Broadway girls in their long silken hosiery, takes on a tone of spectacular in reality, like some fantastic marine backdrop devised by Mr. Dillingham or Mr. Ziegfeld. Chapter L. The day in Montgomery I have walked in Alabama my morning walk. Walt W. H. I. D. M. A. N. As I have remarked before, it is a long haul from the peninsula of Florida to New Orleans. There are two ways to go. The route by way of Pensacola, following the Gulf Coast, looks shorter on the map but is, I believe, in point of time consumed, the longer way. My companion and I were advised to go by way of Montgomery. Alabama long way around it looked where we were to change trains, catching a New Orleans bound express from the north, it was nearly midnight when, after a long tiresome journey, we arrived in Alabama's capital, and after midnight when we reached the comfortable if curiously called Hotel Gate, which is not named for an Indian chief or a kissing game, but for two men who had to do with building it, we had heard that Montgomery was a quiet, sleepy old town and had expected to go immediately to bed on our arrival. What then was our amazement at hearing, 
echoing through the wide street in front of the hotel. The sound of strident ragtime. Investigation disclosed a gaudily striped tent of considerable size set up in the street and illuminated by those flaring naphtha lamps they use in circuses. Going over to the tent, we learned that there was dancing within, whereupon we paid our 15 cents apiece and entered. I had forgotten what produced the music it may have been a mechanical piano or a hurdy-gurdy but there was music, and it was loud, and there was a platform laid over the cobblestones of the street, and on that platform ten or more couples were, ragging, their shoulders working like the walking beams of side-wheelers. The men were of that nondescript type one would expect to see in a fifteen-cent dancing place, but the women were of curious appearance, for all were dressed alike, the costume being a fringed khaki suit with knee-length skirt a bandana at the neck, and a sombrero. On inquiry I learned that this was called a, cowgirl, costume. The dances were very brief, and in the intervals between them most of the dancers went to a, bar, at the end of the tent where Alabama being a dry state the beverage called, Coca-Cola, a habit as much as a drink was being served in whiskey glasses. Unable to understand why this pageant of supposed western mining camp life should confront us in the streets of Alabama's capital. I made inquiry of an amiable policeman who was on duty in the tent, and learned that this was not a regular Montgomery institution, but one of the attractions of a street fair which had invaded the city the main body of the fair being a block or two distant. These fairs, he said, travel about the country much as circuses do, making arrangements in advance with various organizations in different places to stand sponsor for them. Long after we were in our beds that night we were kept awake by the sound of ragtime from the tent across the way. I arose next morning with the feeling of one who has had insufficient sleep, and a glance at my companion, who was already at table when I reached the hotel dining room, informed me that he was suffering from a like complaint. I took my seat opposite him in silence, and he acknowledged my presence with a nod which he accomplished without looking up from his newspaper. After breakfast there arrived a pleasant gentleman who announced himself as secretary of one of the city's commercial organizations. We had a motor here said the secretary, and will show you points of interest. Is there anything in particular you wish to see? I think, said my companion, that it would be a good thing to see the street fair. Oh, Mumber, said the secretary earnestly, you don't want to see that. There is nothing about it that is representative of Montgomery. It is just a traveling show such as you might run into anywhere. Yes, I said, but we never have run into one before. And here at Island, I have said right along declared the secretary, somberly, that it was a great mistake to bring this fair here at all. I don't think you ought to pay any attention to it in your book. It will give people a wrong impression of our city. Do you think it will? If I explain that it is just a traveling fair? Yes. Wait until you see what we have to show you. We want you to understand that Montgomery is a thriving metropolis. Sir, what is there to see? Montgomery, he replied, is known as the city of sunshine. It is rich in history. It has superior hotels, picturesque highways, good fishing and hunting, two golf courses, seven theaters, a number of tennis courts, and unsurpassed artesian water. It has free factory sites, the cheapest electric power rates in the United States, and is the best lighted city in the country. We have some pretty fair street lighting in New York, interjected my companion, who takes much pride in his hometown. I said one of the best lighted replied the secretary. What is the population? Montgomery, the other returned, is typical of both the old and the new South. Though it may be called a modern model city, its wealth of history and tradition are preserved with loving care by its myriad inhabitants. 
How many inhabitants, roses and other flowers are in bloom here throughout the year, said he. Also there are 600 miles of macadamized and picturesque highways in Montgomery County. Indeed, this region is a motorist's paradise. How many people did you say? Montgomery, he answered, is the trading center for a million prosperous souls. At this my companion, who had been reading out Montgomery in a guidebook, began to bristle with hidden knowledge. You say there are a million people here? He demanded. Not right here, admitted the secretary. Well, how many do you claim? 55,410. Right in the city? Well, in the trolley car territory, but in the city itself? My companion insisted. The secretary was fairly cornered. The 1910 census, he said, with a smile, gave us about 40,000. 38,136, corrected my companion. He had not spent hours with the guidebook for nothing. When, presently, we got into the automobile, I gave another feeble chirp about the fair but the secretary was adamant, so we yielded temporarily, and were whirled about the city. Montgomery is a charming old town, not only by reason of the definite things it has to show, but also because of a general rich suggestion of old southern life. The day, by a fortunate chance, was Saturday, and everywhere we went we encountered Negroes driving in from the country to market, in their rickety old wagons. On some wagons there would be four or five men and women and here and there one would be playing a musical instrument and they would all be singing, while the creaking of the wagon came in with an orchestral quality which seemed grotesquely suitable. The mules, too, looked as though they ought to creak, and an inspection of the harness suggested that it was held together, not so much by the string and wire with which it was mended, as by the fingers of that especial providence which watches over all kinds of absurd repairs made by Negroes, and makes them hold for Negroes where they would not hold for white men, in an old buff-painted brick building standing on the corner of Commerce and Big Streets. The Confederate government had its first offices, and from this building, if I mistake not, was sent the telegraphic order to fire on Fort Sumter. Another historical building is the dilapidated frame residence at the corner of Big and Lee Streets, which was the first White House of the Confederacy. This building is now a boarding house, and is in a pathetic state of decay. But perhaps when Montgomery gets up the energy to build a fine tourist hotel, or when outside capital comes in and builds one, the old house will be furbished up to provide a site for visitors. There are several reasons why Montgomery would be a good place for a large winter resort hotel, and if I were a Montgomery booster, I should give less thought to free factory sites than to building up the town as a winter stopping place for tourists. The town itself is picturesque and attractive, as to a railroads it is well situated albeit the claim that Montgomery is the gateway to Florida strikes me as a little bit exaggerated, the climate is delightful, and the surrounding country is not only beautiful but fertile. Furthermore, there are already two golf clubs one for Jews and one for Gentiles and the links are reputed to be good, and like many southern cities of moderate size, Montgomery has well-paved streets, and the better residence streets, being wide, and lined with trees and pleasant houses each in its own lawn, give a suggestion of an agreeable home and social life a suggestion which, by implication at least, report substantiates, for it has been said that the chief industry of Montgomery is that of raising beautiful young women to make wives for the rich men of Birmingham, on such pleasant thoroughfares as South Perry Street, it may be noticed that many of the newer houses have taken their architectural inspiration from old ones, with the result that, though, originality, does not jump out at the passerby. 
as it does on so many streets, north and south, which are lined with the heterogeneous homes of prosperous families, there is an agreeable architectural harmony over the town, this is not, of course, invariably true, but it is truer, I think, in Montgomery than in most other cities, and if Montgomery is defaced by the funny little settlement called Dangalo City, that settlement island at least, upon the outskirts of the town, Dangalo City is without exception the queerest real estate development I ever saw, it consists of several blocks of tiny houses, standing on tiny lots, the scale of everything being so small as to suggest a play village for children, the houses are, however, homes, and I was told that in some of them all sorts of curious space-saving devices are installed as, for instance, tables and beds which can be folded into the walls. Not far from this little settlement is an old house which used to be the home of Tweed, New York's notorious political boss, who, it is said, used to spend much time here. The chief lion of the city is the old state house, which stands on a graceful eminence in a small well-kept park just as the New York State Capitol is probably the most shamefully expensive structure of the kind in the entire country, that of Alabama is, I fancy, the most creditably inexpensive, building and grounds cost 335.000, moreover, the capital of Alabama is a better looking building than that of New York, for it is without gingerbread trimmings, and has about it the air of honest simplicity that an American state house ought to have, of course it has a dome, and of course it has a column portico, but both are plain, and there is a large clock, in a quaint box-like tower, over the peak of the portico, which contributes to the building a curious touch of individuality, at the center of the portico floor, under this clock, a brass plate marks the spot where Jefferson Davis stood when he delivered his inaugural address, February 18, 1861, and in the state senate chamber, Within a fine simple room with a gallery of peculiar grace the provisional government of the Confederacy was organized. The flag of the Confederacy was, I believe, adopted in this room, and was first flying to the breeze from the Capitol building. It was past three in the afternoon when we left the State House, and we had had no luncheon. Now, said my companion as we returned to the automobile, I think we had better have something to eat, and then go to the fair, but you were going to give up the fair put in the secretary, oh, Munger, we said in chorus, I had arranged about luncheon, he returned, we will have it served at the hotel in a short time, but first there are some important sights I wish you to see, man shall not live by sights alone, objected my companion, what are you going to show us, we had a beautiful woman's college, that, said my companion, is the one thing that could tempt me, how many beautiful women are there, it's not the women it's the building, the secretary explained. Then, said my companion firmly, I think we'd better go and have our lunch. It seemed to me time to back him up in this demand. By dint of considerable insistence we persuaded our enthusiastic Cicerone, 